0: Well, good morning, Moncton Wesleyan. How are we all doing this morning? Good, good. That video that you just saw is actual footage from a few weeks ago of our Haiti team handing out Operation Christmas Child gift boxes to children. Isn't that great? I think that's awesome. That's two real important initiatives that are a a part of our church. Uh, speaking of great, how, um, how about those kids that are just handing out those baskets out there? Aren't they doing a great job? Absolutely. Volunteering and our Kids World volunteer ushering. They're volunteering today as part of their service project, their annual service project, and we, we think that that's absolutely awesome, and we're so proud of you kids for being here today. Thank you for coming. And, uh, and while we're at it, uh, how about this morning, a shout-out, a shout-out to Moncton Christian Academy Girls basketball team, hey, how about that? The Tier 2, get this, Tier 2 Class A NBIAA AA champions who completed, get this, a perfect undefeated season yesterday, how about that, hey? Woo. By winning the championship, that's pretty impressive. And it's Valentine's Day, so I can hardly contain myself here this morning. Man, oh man. Happy Valentine's Day, Christy. I love you very much. On the morning of August 17th, 1971, nine young men in Palo Alto, California received visits from the local police officers in that area with uh, neighbors looking on, these men were arrested for violating Penal Code 211 and 459, serious offenses of armed robbery and burglary. They were searched, they were handcuffed, and they were led into the rear of a waiting police car, police cars. The, uh, The cars took them to the Palo Alto police station where the men were fingerprinted, booked, moved to a holding cell, and they were blindfolded. After that, they were transported to the Stanford County Prison, also known as the Stanford University Psychology Department. These nine men, see, were willing volunteers in the Stanford Prison Experiment. Maybe you've heard about this experiment, one of the most controversial studies in the history of social psychology. The study subjects, middle-class college students, had voluntarily answered a questionnaire about their family backgrounds, about their physical and mental health, about their social behavior, and they were deemed normal. A coin flip arbitrarily dividing them into a role as either prisoner or guard. Now, according to the, to the lore that was associated with this particular experiment, the volunteer guards, with little to no instruction, began humiliating and physically and psychologically abusing the volunteer prisoners within 24 hours of the start of the study. The volunteer prisoners, in turn, they became submissive and depersonalized, taking the abuse and saying very little in protest. The behavior of all of the volunteer subjects in this experiment was so extreme that the experiment that was meant to last two weeks was terminated abruptly after six days. One of the conclusions that came out of this study is that certain situations, certain institutions or environments have such strong expectations attached to them that they can actually shape human behavior. In other words, how we think about a situation determines how we respond to that situation. So if I think of myself as a prison guard in charge of convicted lawbreakers, I may act one way, but if I think of myself as a volunteer Stanford undergraduate student interacting with other successful male students, in an experiment, I probably won't hit them with a billy stick. Because how we think about a situation typically determines how we respond to that situation. Are you with me this morning? Okay, good, hold on to that thought, we'll come back to it. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter three. We're in the, uh, in the third week of our ROAR series. Together, as a church, we have been tracking how some young Hebrews responded to really some crazy situations, resolving to stick with God even in the middle of some really, really serious pressure to conform. Today, we're actually going to look at Daniel chapter 3, and we're jumping into yet another example of human faithfulness in the midst of a situation that has really some strong, strong expectations that are attached to it. So let's start reading there. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read first verses 1 to 7. Follow along with me. I'm reading from the NIV this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide or, in other words, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship, will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You'll remember if you were here last week that we heard about this very same king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has this, this vivid dream. Do you remember that from last week? Those of you who are here? And, and Daniel interprets this dream in chapter two. And Nebuchadnezzar is impressed if you remember the story. And he, he pays homage to the Hebrew king in chapter two. And he's so impressed that the king gives Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego high ranking or ranking uh, positions in his. Government. Well, as we begin chapter 3, what we just read here just a few moments ago, King Nebuchadnezzar is still the king, but it's likely that there's been a five to ten year span between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So, five to ten years. We've had a week. And in the span of that time, King Nebuchadnezzar has has moved on. Obviously, it seems clear he's forgotten the Hebrew God, and now his actions reveal the motives of a person who seems driven by thoughts about his own power and his own authority. And so what is he compelled to do? What does he do? What does he do? He builds an image, or he encourages an image to be built. He, he sets up this statue. In verse 1, we read that it's made of gold, and it's very tall, like three school buses stacked end-to-end tall. And if, in fact, it was created out of pure gold, it's probably something like, in today's standards, a $20 million nine-story statue, okay? So kind of picture that with me this morning. Crazy big. Crazy expensive, and and Nebuchadnezzar uses this statue as a political symbol of his kingdom. Uh, A unifying object for the diverse population that's under his reign. The people are asked to bow down to it, and everyone is expected to conform. Everyone. His thinking, the king's thinking, is that if he can get the influencers in society, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, if he can get them under his pressure and put them under pressure, think Stanford experiment, everyone else will comply. They'll all bow down. They'll all bow down to the idol. Well, let's stop there just for a few minutes this morning and and let's ask ourselves how an ancient uh, nine-story tall gold statue actually relates to us. I mean, honestly, it's not like in our time today that we're pressured to physically bow down to these sorts of statues or it's not uh, in our experience to say that we are forced to attend orchestral, government-imposed concerts in the public square. But maybe, maybe you have felt the cultural pressure to keep your faith private and personal. Or to conform to the prevailing norms of behavior, for example, in your workplace or with the other hockey and soccer parents or with your crowd at school even when you know that God has something else to say about that particular behavior you with me this morning an interesting observation in what we just read there in Daniel chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 is that there is no explicit mention of God Actually, in that particular passage that we just read. But but every Jew, every Jew in that particular time would have known that God had declared, Have no other gods before me. And so Jews of that day, they would have understood that it's not okay to call God number one and then bow down to other popular images or gods or idols. Of the day. And friends, that's pertinent to us today, is it not? It's the same for us. In order to keep God as God, it's our responsibility as Christians to recognize anything, any idol that dilutes our worship of the true God. And church, make no mistake, these hazards. They come in uncountable varieties for us, in our pleasures, in powers, in control, in relationships, in careers, and in our finances. Appeals from within and pressures from without that attempt to take the focus of our lives and and make our decisions not on what we understand to be God, and God's will, but on the popular, trendy, common, nine-story idols of our day. What are those things for us? What are those temptations? They represent temptations to, to conform, to bow down to idols and they may seem so innocent because everybody's doing it. They're the expected norm. Our situations and the expectations associated with them often dictating our behavior and our actions. Hold those thoughts and let's keep reading. Let's read from verse 8 to 12. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of God and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But, There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Something I want us to notice about the passage that we've just read there is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story, they don't appear to be holding any sort of public protest against this idol. These guys are not looking for trouble, okay? They're actually working for the king. And and, and yes, they're worshiping God. And some have taken offense to this. Some have taken offense to this. Verse 8 there that we just read says that some astrologers go to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we need to uh, know a little bit about these guys, but we really don't know a whole lot. One thing that we do know is that these are not temperate, nice gentlemen just looking to help out the king. The word there, denounced in verse 8. Do you see it there? In verse 8, denounced. It says that they denounce the Jews. The English word denounce doesn't really capture the nuance of this word in the original language. The Aramaic word used was Karsehan, and it literally means to eat the pieces of flesh torn off someone's body. It's an uncivilized image. It's malicious, but it captures what the English does not. These guys see they're out for some Jewish blood. Make no mistake, they are going hard after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jealous, perhaps, with the professional ascension of these guys. They want to bring them down. They want to bring these rising stars down fast while they have a chance, And so they appeal to the king. They want this king to know that even though these Jews have served this king with distinction and excellence, that they are willfully performing a calculated act of defiance against the king. Now, we do not know in this story whether or not Shadma- Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a heads up about the charges that, will le- that were leveled against them. But even if they are not... The point is, they will soon. Trouble is coming. Trouble is coming. I think trouble has a way of finding us, too. (laughs) Am I alone here this morning by thinking that? It's not always in the the form of professional or political attacks. Sometimes it's a lost job, or a messy relationship, or some sort of issue. Sometimes it's a terrible sickness. And it feels like someone or something is literally almost trying to rip us apart. Trying to eat us up. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that, may, that way. Maybe you've had a week like that. The cards have been stacked against you. You know, there's a, a saying that we use sometimes. We say it when we're happy <laughs> And when trouble seems to be far away, a long way off, we say life is good. <laughs> Somebody even has trademarked this and made all kinds of money marketing this particular slogan. I get the slogan. You probably do too. But can I gently say this morning, I don't read it in our Bibles. In fact, I read Job chapter 5, verse 7, And I hear instead, people are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. Or I turn over to 1 Peter 4, verse 12, and I'm reminded, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. See, we don't look for trouble. We don't look for trouble. Trouble finds us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were not doing anything wrong. In fact, they were doing what was right, and trouble still found them. Think about that. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 13 down to 18. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown down immediately into a blazing furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king, but Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar is ripping mad. And he summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for a loyalty test. And and they're given an ultimatum. Do as I say, Or deal with what I can do. Remember, it's been five to ten years since Daniel has confronted this king with the wisdom and the might of the one true God. But sadly, he's forgotten that God, the king has, King Nebuchadnezzar. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have not forgotten They answer with courage and resolve. Catch this. They acknowledge God's ability to save them. They do. But they also envision the possibility that God might not save them. And yet, they maintain their refusal to put their loyalty to man above their loyalty to God. I do not want us to pass by this part of the story too quickly. If we read it too fast, we rush to deliverance, and we miss something very important. You see, these courageous Jews, they give us a response that helps us to preserve or helps to preserve us from the false idea that God removes us from suffering, obstacles, and pain. Pastor Willie just prayed that a few moments ago. Can I be frank this morning, church, and say something that you all already know? Life is not always good. In Canada, we tend sometimes to be shocked when we suffer. We don't expect it. I mean, I mean, we're good people, and life is supposed to be good to us the shock that trouble has come to us is actually half of our devastation. But in most of the rest of the world, people do not think like this. The truth, friends, is life, catch this, in and of itself is not the source of goodness. God is good. God is the source of goodness. People who truly believe this can respond to life's greatest challenges and life's greatest troubles with incredible poise like many of you do, incredible courage, incredible faith, because God is good. God is the source of goodness. And so with this echoing in our minds, let's Let's read the ending of this story, starting again in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. And so these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Can you picture it? Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, "'Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire?' They replied, "'Certainly, O king.' He said, "'Look, I see see four men walking around in the fire, "'unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods.' Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, "'Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'servants of the Most High, come out, come here!' So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Yeah, sure. When our kids were younger, uh, we used to read a story, uh, a little book called "Hey, That's Not What the Bible Says." <laughs> uh, in it, the author of that particular book, he would start. He started by telling popular, uh, popular Bible story, whether it was Adam and Eve, or Noah and the Ark, or uh, Jonah and the Whale. But but then, and according to this quirky little book, uh, the author gives a wrong ending. And so, for example, he he tells the story uh, how the disciples were with Jesus in the boat, right? During the storm, big storm comes up and they were getting all nervous and, and, and they're asking Jesus for help. And so what does Jesus do? Well, according to this author, he pushed a secret red button that transformed the fishing boat into a super-duper watertight submarine. And of course, <laughs> the, uh, the best part, of the reading experience was when the kids, they'd get all riled up and they'd get excited and they would turn the next page and they'd shout out with the capital lettered font, hey, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> then the book corrected the story. You'll be pleased to know, those of you who are Bible scholars here, giving the more proper, presumably biblical account of the story. You know, I can think of a, a few different alternate endings for our story here this morning. Granted, still, still deliverance stories, but for example, God could have just extinguished the flames in this fiery furnace. Instead of lighting things up, he could have just shut the furnace down. Certainly, uh, God could have saved these Jews from the fire, not not in it, but that's that's not what the Bible says. Or or God could have just had uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out of the furnace or perform some awesome acrobatic Jackie Chan style maneuver out of the flames, right? (laughs) Or moreover, maybe the three men could have even come out dripping wet. That would have been a... Kind of a cool story. God could have saved the three of them alone in the fire, but that's not what the Bible says. You see, the reality is that God chose a very personal touch. There's a fourth man in the furnace. Now, in the Bible, it isn't clear whether it's Jesus himself or an angel from God, but clearly The message from God is just remarkably clear. And the message is, I am showing up. I'm showing up. I'm showing up. My imagination sort of runs a little wild. I think it would have been cool to know more about the conversation that actually went on in the furnace. (laughs) Did these... Jews? Did they actually talk to this fourth person? And if they did, I, w- I wonder what they—I wonder what they said. We don't know, of course. But friends, those conversations with God in the furnace—those are the personal, refining conversations that turn our faith to gold. You see, I have to have my own furnace talks with God. And you have to have your own furnace talks with God when the heat is really turned up around you. You know this. You know this. God wants to be there in your fire. Moncton Wesleyan, God always has a plan. God always has a plan. God is always up to something. God can meet us in any situation, no matter how bad and complicated it is. I want to remind us this morning that he is the God who showed up as Jacob's wrestling partner. He showed up as the burning bush to Moses. Think of the Israelites in the pillar of cloud and fire. And think of Job's thunderstorm. And think of Jesus, Emmanuel. The Word became flesh and dwelling among us. The one who came and lived perfectly in every crazy situation and died the death that we deserved. The one who claimed, I have come that they may have life. And have it to the full. Think of the risen Christ who, having conquered sin and death, and he's about to return to heaven, and he says, I am with you always. Friends, God is good. God is good, and God wants to be there in our troubles today. Start of the message, I made that statement that how we think about our situations determines how we actually respond to these situations. And so as we apply what we're learning this morning, I wanna ask, what if, what if moment by moment we really believed that God is good? That God is king? And by that I mean that God is in charge of our lives. And our worlds, how might that change our response to that troubling situation you brought to church this morning? And so I'd like to try to make things entirely practical as we draw to a close here this morning and ask a couple questions to test how willing we are to build our lives on a premise that while life is life, God is good. And God is wise, and God is strong, and God is king. The first question then is this, what are we feeding our minds? Think of that this morning. What are you feeding your minds? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't stand up to a king with a furnace unless they've centered their minds on God's promise, unless they've identified more with a heavenly king than a human king who challenges them to conform. They notice that their identity is not normalized by their situation. Instead, their identity is formed by an intentional focus on God. Today, um, like Many of you, most of you, I presume, have secular jobs. You have jobs in which you spend 40 to 50 hours a week in the working world. And for many of us, we have friends, and and we have family members who might not believe as we do, and, and certainly we should work on developing those relationships too. But then what? in our discretionary time, to what sources do we turn to? For example, what are we watching on television? What are we reading on social media? What books are we reading? What music fills our ears? If we take 112 waking hours of our week, and we allow our minds to be filled with worldly things, except for one and a half hours on Sunday, of course. It would be a bit astonishing, don't you think, if our minds ended up operating out of any other system other than a secular one. So we must be deliberate about putting in God's truth so that we can think God's ways. We must be intentional, friends, about cooperating with the Holy Spirit by by feeding our minds with resources that are actually in line with the values of God. How do we do that? Here's a few simple examples. We read our Bibles. We start a prayer journal. We attend a small group. We find a spiritual mentor or a guide, and we meet with them regularly. We listen to music that feeds our souls. We take a walk, and and we praise God for everything that we see. We invite a family over for supper, and we ask them what God's been doing in their lives. Some of you are great at that. We tell others what God's been doing in our life. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That's a command from Scripture, Colossians chapter three verse two. What are we feeding our minds, church? What are we feeding our minds? The second question is simply this: How, uh, how do we approach our decisions? It's uh, reasonable that this question comes right after the previous one because what we feed our minds has a profound effect on how we think about things. And how we think about things affects how we make decisions. Remember that example from before, Palo Alto? And so think about this, Christian. When was the last time you made a decision that seemed completely abnormal to the world around you. It made sense to you, based on your convictions as a Christian, but it seemed completely abnormal to the world around you. Let me use a little anecdote to illustrate this. My son, Andrew, uh, he spent his first six years in Ethiopia before he was adopted into our family. Some of you know Andrew. He's 13, just turned 13. Christy and I absolutely love this guy. We love our other children as well. We love uh, Andrew uh, for sure as well. He just turned 13. When Andrew came into our world in, uh, in 2009 in, here in Canada, he found himself uh, in some situations that must have seemed absolutely absurd to him. Take snow, for example, right? (laughs) (laughs) What in the world is a boy from Ethiopia supposed to think about the weather that we have just been experiencing over the last few days, right? Uh, Thinking back to those early days, I have a particularly vivid memory of this little guy, young guy, in my mind goes back to uh, one of the first weeks that we had spent, uh, had spent together. He had uh, just started school, Andrew had. He spoke very little English, uh, spoke no French at all, uh, only spoke an African dialect uh, called Amharic, and a notice, you get these notices, a notice came home uh, from school that his class was having a dress-up day. <laughs> Well, Andrew, in his uh, six-year-old mind, uh, had in his uh, psyche, had in his mind that school was a very serious thing. You see, Andrew was, was born into a country where not everyone had the privilege or the opportunity to go to school. If you didn't have money, for example, or if you didn't buy a uniform, or if you lived too far away, school was just a pipe dream for some other kid. And so, in Andrew's thoughts about school early on, there was no room for frivolousness, the frivolousness of a dress-up day. And so, Andrew refused to dress up. <laughs> no amount of talking, no efforts, sign language I remember being at the time, no efforts to convince him of that reality, the reality of his classroom in Canada, full of princesses and Spider-Man and fuzzy animals. It was effective. He made his decision. (laughs) He dressed in jeans and a polo shirt. And, of course, he was the only one in his class dressed like that. You see, his decision made perfect sense to a kid that was born in Ethiopia, in Africa, not in Canada. And it went against the flow. And on that day, Andrew was okay with that. He was okay with that. It's a simple illustration. But let me ask again, when was the last time you took a stand against the nine-story idols of our day? See, some of the decisions that we observe people making all around us. They make perfect sense for those who operate within a system of belief that centers on the self or who assumes that life lasts 80-some years and then you just die. But what if many of those pervasive common ideas are wrong? Sometimes we think what we're doing, friends, is perfectly natural or absolutely reasonable. It's common sense. But maybe, for some of us here today, we need to think less commonly. Maybe like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to decide more uniquely, more like our God, as we feed our minds with God-thoughts, we can learn to make thoughtful, God-centered decisions. And hear me, we can even make those thoughtful, God-centered decisions in the midst of the troubled situations that try to shake us. And so in closing, friends, I simply remind us, God is always up to something. God is always up to something pay attention to what you're feeding your mind pay attention pay attention to what you're thinking and how you're thinking and pay attention to how you're approaching the decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis and remember that god wants to show up and be with you he's gone all the way to the cross To make this possible we're going to close this morning with a verse of scripture that uh, reflects i think an attitude of anticipation with regard to god it commits to an intentional pursuit of god and his ways that like shadrach meshach and abednego refuses to bow to any lesser god so i'm going to ask us to stand as we continue in worship and as a church uh, let's read this together corporately. This is from this is Paul's words from Philippians chapter four, verses four to five. From the message, let's uh, let's read this like we mean it this morning. Let's go for it. Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in Him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up at any minute. Amen. Amen.